Well, there have always been, and there are even today, particular controversies that surround the, the person and the work of Jesus. There are controversies, social controversies, that surround anywhere Jesus, where his name or where he has gone. Uh, you, you might think about socially or politically Ten Commandments being placed in a classroom. For whatever reason, that is controversial for this side or that, or maybe you've had Ten Commandments, you've seen those, those battles online or over the news where the Ten Commandments in plaque-type form are placed before courthouses, causing a disruption within the society around them. Uh, or maybe you might even recognize that, at least from a Protestant standpoint, we actually have no representation of who Christ is on the Supreme Court. There's no Protestants on the Supreme Court. It seems like everyone in Congress is a Protestant, or everyone everywhere is a Protestant, except for the Supreme Court. That, that might cause some sense of controversy on, on, like, what are we missing out on, or what are they missing out on? Or you may have heard of a statue that's in, on the border of Chile and Argentina, these two countries that are constantly uh, battling against each other, but a group of Christians from both sides wanted to erect a statue of the person of Jesus and plant it right in the middle of the border, except a controversy came about where they noticed, at least people in Chile noticed, that Jesus was facing away from them and towards Argentina. Or maybe even in our own town's sake, the, the erection or the uh, lifting up of a Christ tree, as it was known, a giant Christmas tree in downtown Enid, caused a controversy one day later in the newspaper as if we knew it was going to happen. The, the identity of a Christmas tree being portrayed and named the Christ tree caused a disruption. Now what's controversial, though, we see around us is not new to us or to the people of God. What's controversial about Matthew's account of Jesus in our passage is not just what Jesus does, but the reality that, that Jesus has the audacity of claiming who he is to be and what he has come to do and what he promises to do. It's more shocking and controversial than you can even imagine the claims of Christ and the, the things that Christ is saying about himself. Now, for those of you who haven't been here, or for those of you who've been here regularly, and it's been a couple of weeks, but if you will remember what Matthew paints a picture of Jesus like in passages before, Matthew actually gives us a glimpse of the heart of Christ altogether. And the heart of Christ, not only his character, not only his path, but also the very heart of Christ is controversial as well. Jesus is said to be lowly and gentle. Whereas people who were longing for this Messiah to come wanted him to be a warrior, someone who would wreak havoc on those around him. Jesus just said that you must come to him in the passage ahead of ours in the text. You must come to him, and you can come to him without any fear or any pain and suffering because what he calls his yoke or his tutelage is one of rest and peace. And not only Jesus says, can you come to him? Can you trust him entirely for rest and peace? But you can actually give your entire life over to him. You can, you can walk where he walks. You can actually place yourself under his complete care because of the kind of leader or Lord he is. Someone who is gentle. Someone who is lowly. Someone who is powerful. Someone who is strong. He's saying, you can take refuge in me. And the only time it's recorded about Jesus in, refu in reference to his heart uh, he's being defined in this way. Now, now hear this. Matthew intentionally communicates to you about the life of Christ as, a power, as an all-powerful, all-controlling God who is 
gentle and lowly, gentle and humble. On, on top or alongside him being all powerful and all wise, he is gentle and humble. And then Matthew, in our passage today, stunningly will give us a contrast of what one Lord looks like as gentle and lowly versus other rulers or authorities of the day as being highly religious, or what would, we would call today as religiously fundamental, by putting their yoke on people's shoulders, calling them to live in a particular way. When you think about the beginning of a year, January is already over. And if you're like me, you had plans on January 1st, you had desires on January 2nd, you even saw yourself making headway on what this year was really going to be to you, but here it is, January 30th, and we're already sad. A month has gone by, and we haven't reached any of our goals. And chapter 12 here is a great time to to look back on what God has been teaching us from His Word. When you think about chapter 12, it it is in many ways a, a contrast of of all the teaching that has gone before it, where we see this preeminent contrast of who Jesus now says he is. So if you're trying to figure out exactly who Jesus is, or you're trying to set this year apart of walking in the footsteps of Christ, chapter 12 is a great reflection point for you. A major theme that runs throughout all of scriptures is answering the question of what did Jesus come to do? We know he came, or at least professing Christians says that he came, but what did he come to do? And here we have this exposed to us this morning. This theme that runs throughout scripture is answering the question of what Jesus came to do, and there is a hidden desire and an obvious desire that runs throughout all the pages of scripture where it's said that a redeemer is going to come, did come, and has come in order to bring rest back to humanity. And Jesus came to give his people rest, it says in the scriptures, for their souls. Within the first couple of uh, the chapters of the scriptures, you might remember that God creates the heavens and the earth, and then he rested on the seventh day. And he didn't rest on the seventh day because he was tired or because he needed to, but rather he was done. He completed the work that he wanted to do, and so he rested on that seventh day. Then he invites Adam and Eve to join him in this perfect, what's called a Sabbath rest. And in the beginning, God would would take Adam and Eve and place them in the garden, it says, for the point of them resting in who he is, resting in the refuge and within the relationship that God gives them. And then, not just a little bit later, Adam and Eve sins there in the garden where this perfect rest was ruined. You know, some of you might have bought a couch, forgetting that you have a toddler, and this wonderful couch is now ruined, Right? Some of you, surely, nod your head. Okay, there we go. Here, God has made this beautiful, perfect place and has placed his image bearers within it, and they have disrupted that rest entirely. But when God begins his work, he would overcome the the toilsome work that was brought on to these people. His presence was recognizing the heavy burden that they were placing on themselves, placing on other people, and enduring on their own, this toilsome work, these broken relationships that people had from the very beginning of the scriptures, a couple of pages in, we recognize that it was God who was going to redeem them from that pain and frustration by bringing a particular person for them to trust in. And when God begins his work of redeeming a people for himself, he speaks in terms of rest continually throughout the scripture. God made a way for Israel 
to come again into his presence, to be restored to a right relationship with him, where God's presence amongst his people in a particular land is described as providing rest for themselves. Or he gave them a tabernacle or a temple where they would have, in many ways, a place where they could rest by having refuge in the person of God. They were like a new creation, these, these places where they could find refuge in God's presence. And then when God would covenant with Israel, he gave them a sign of this rest that they would have, that the Sabbath day, the seventh day of the week, the Sabbath was meant to, in many ways, point back to God's rest in creation. And it was also meant to point forward for a future and final rest, where, where it would almost feel like practically we wouldn't have the other six days of the week because we are constantly and forever in the very restful presence of God. And that seventh day rest was intended for people to, to recognize all that they have done and what God had done for them, but also to turn their heads a little bit forward and say, a day is coming where full rest will be in your presence. And so when Jesus shows up, I know this is a long intro, but just hold on. We've got another page to go. So when Jesus shows up with all of this resting or Sabbath language already played out, it was incredibly shocking and controversial when he was living in such a way that was disrupting the religious leader's view of what true rest meant. It was shocking when he said, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden. That would have been different in what they would have heard from other people. If, if you can just make it to the Sabbath, it'll be a good week. How many of you have just said, if I can make it to five o'clock on Friday, right, then this week will be over. And Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary, and I will give you full rest. This is shocking. So it's not just he's giving sweet little, you know, Hallmark greeting cards. I'm like, oh, just join my friendship. Just join my relationship. What he is exposing in their religious pursuits is an acknowledgement that, that how they have been directing their hearts to the Lord have been wrong. And it's here that Matthew points out this contrast. Jesus says that he brings rest. And Matthew says in such a way, watch what he does to the Pharisees and their idea of rest. He says, come to me. And then it's as if Matthew was saying, okay, okay, watch how he's going to act towards those who are in charge religiously. Now, friend, when you approach this text, I hope that you hear Jesus' words, God's words, and see him as the only one you can, who can bring you rest. By rest, he offers you what this means to have rest in Christ. He offers you full forgiveness of your sins. Full forgiveness of your sins. He alone can restore us to a right relationship with God, that rest, restful relationship with the Father that was lost on the other side of Eden. But the Pharisees, they were not going to see this. They are not teaching like this. In fact, they would become an opponent of Jesus as he talks about himself being rest because they're saying, no, 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 our rest looks like this rule and that rule and that rule. And Jesus will expose their hearts. And this is where the tension of the text sits. They didn't just come to him. They tried to keep others from coming to him. He, he was giving out this teaching of what true rest meant in God. And they were actually trying to distract people or fend people away from who Jesus was altogether because they were threatened by him. He was turning their teaching over. The yoke that they were putting on people, and, and the yoke looks like this. It looks like 
the man-made rules, we, we can say at best it was out of the kindness of their heart of them trying to, to help Jewish people live in a particular way that would bring God glory, but it, but it turned out that it was a heavy yoke of man-made rules that they were then causing people to think they could earn God's love. But what Jesus was offering were boundaries of protection because of God's law, because of God's love. One system of religion says, if you do these things, God will then love you. The Christian view of true life is, because God did particular and these things, you then can have the love of God. That's from him. The Pharisees were powerful people, and they liked their power, so this man was disrupting them. One way they exercised this power was through enforcing what was called the Mosaic Law. We see this in the Old Testament, the Mosaic Law. But when things in the law were not explicit, Pharisees actually made up their own policies to help Israel keep God's law. They were, they were the heavy burdens that Jesus speaks of. Maybe it's not, it's not the same, but, but our country has a constitution. The constitution tells us how we're to operate and rule under and around with one another, but it doesn't spell out everything, right? And so the country itself or the Congress itself, or governing agencies, to tip my hand a little bit, governing agencies create these rules that we must live under, these policies. And that's what these Pharisees had done. They had taken God's good Mosaic law, and in areas where they thought, ah, that doesn't seem that clear. What does it mean to obey the Sabbath? Okay, we'll help people out by creating these rules. And then Jesus comes on the scene, and he actually breaks, not his rules, but he actually breaks their man-made rules. So, for example, the Mosaic law called Israel to keep the Sabbath, as in your normal work, you take a break from that. On a regular basis, if you are a pilot or a farmer or a banker or a student or in sales, on a normal week, you are to take a break from that work. Now, there was some guidance in the law for how to keep a Sabbath, right? The law said you couldn't work, you couldn't travel, uh, you couldn't gather firewood, But it didn't say much more than that. So Pharisees created more rules about the Sabbath, and they they actually made 39 rules alongside what God's law says about the Sabbath with the hopes of keeping you in the love of God. Now, in chapter 12, Jesus and his disciples aren't following the man-made rules. And this is a threat to the Pharisees. And what Jesus shows is his authority is greater than than the burden that they are putting on other people. His authority is one of rest, and their authority is one of control. Now, what our our large passage does is it shows us Jesus' audacious authority. It declares things about Christ and his purpose, and it beautifully does this. And the first thing, so now we are at point one. The first thing it does, ironically, is it shows us the authority of God is one demonstrating his care for his people. This text announces several things along the way. I think it announces three particular things. In verses 1 through 8, it announces that Jesus really does care about his people. Now, you can imagine Jesus and his disciples taking or going through the field before going to a synagogue. Now, you and I, when we think of wheat fields, you know, you might drive in a certain direction and see all of these fields. Nowadays, we build roads around fields. In that time, they would have had large fields or large wheat fields, and there would have been like a, a, a narrow path or a way through that field that was normally traveled through. So, so w- this might look peculiar for you. Like, why are they just wandering around in a wheat field? Like, what is happening there? Like, I, I don't, for all of you 
who own wheat fields. You will never catch me just wandering around your field. And if you do, please call Brooke because I am not okay. All right, so <laughs> they, are, they are walking through this field and they are very hungry. On the way, his disciples are hungry and he tells them to pick up some wheat for a snack. And this is permissible at that time. The law gives provision for poor people who are hungry at any time to pick up a little grain for food. Not, not to store up a lot of stuff, so you're not bringing in your satchel or something and just stuffing it full of this food. But if you are going in a particular way and you don't have the means to do so, it was allowable, according for God's rule, for you to take and eat in those places. Except, according to the Pharisees, you could do this, except on the Sabbath. All right, so this is where the controversy really stirs up. There was nothing in God's law that said picking grain was a violation of the Sabbath, except for one of their 39 articles. They were being watched by the Pharisees, it, it almost seems. Like, here are these guys, like, crouching around little pieces of wheat. And I apologize for all of you who actually do this for a living, me saying a little piece of wheat, and you're like, that guy doesn't know what he's talking about. And you're right. Um, however, these people were watching Jesus and his followers, and they pounced. They found something. All right, these guys are taking wheat on the Sabbath. Not only were they taking something when their rules said they couldn't, but according to the Pharisees' rules which again are different than the biblical commands, the Pharisees considered picking grain up as what we would call harvesting. They would consider uh, rubbing, the wheat, uh, rubbing the wheat out in their hands, they would consider that threshing. And when they would blow it away as if to just have what's left, they would call that winnowing. And then eating, they were preparing a meal. So you have strike one, strike two, strike three, strike four. So the Pharisees say to Jesus, look, your disciples are doing, in verse two, what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. They think that they broke four rules right there just by eating. Now, Jesus amazingly doesn't defend himself here. Uh, He doesn't even defend his disciples for their specific actions. He never says, wait, guys, that's not what the law says, which he could have. Instead, he goes on the offensive. He actually takes these Pharisees to the book. Jesus actually takes them to the Old Testament in three ways. He gives them three different arguments, and that's what the the couple of verses in verses 1 through 8 actually show us. He gives them three arguments on how they're wrong, and then says that he knows what he's doing because he's the Lord of the Sabbath. So he goes on the offensive and says, you're wrong in this way, you're wrong in this way, you're wrong in this way, and I can say that because I'm God. They thought they had Jesus on four things. Now they're going to have him, or at least they think they are, on one big thing, right? He wasn't just breaking minor IRS rules. He was saying that he is a king over all. Jesus amazingly doesn't defend himself, but he goes on the offensive. First thing he does is he appealed to a king. He appealed to David. His first argument was from the life of David. He asked, do you guys remember? Have you not read? which is such a derogatory thing to say to these people who would have read. They would have known. They would have been scholars of what the Old Testament, our Old Testament would say. And then here Jesus says, do you guys even remember what's written there? When David and his men were running for their lives from Saul and given the showbread from the tabernacle on the Sabbath, that's, that's the case that he's referring back to in uh, Leviticus 24 or in 1 Samuel. Uh, where they were running for their lives and they sought refuge in the tabernacle and they were 
seeking out this, what is called showbread from the tabernacle on the Sabbath. It wasn't just a random occurrence of them running away from people, but they were doing it on the Sabbath. Now, normally eating the showbread for anyone to do was a violation of God's law. It was something that only the priest could handle. But David was, according to Jesus in Leviticus 24, David was never indicted for his actions. God showed mercy on them in seeking refuge and in eating in that place of the tabernacle. You can see the parallel here. God's person was leading his people to rest, and out of God's goodness and care, good was done to them even on the Sabbath. If under special circumstances, Meliak allowed David and his companions to eat the sacred showbread despite the restrictions of Leviticus 24, verses 5 through 9, that only priests could eat of the food, how much more appropriate, Jesus is bringing to their attention, how much more appropriate is it then for Jesus to determine when his disciples may pluck grain on a Sabbath? He's not just reminding them of what the law is saying. He is, through all of these things, saying... Uh, They're actually taking refuge in me, which is an incredibly controversial thing to say. Second, first he appeals to a king. Second, he appeals to a priest. The second example that he gives comes from the law itself and is clear. Look at verse 5 of the text. Or have you not read in the law that on the Sabbath the priests in the temple break the Sabbath and are innocent? Every Sabbath day the priest would break the Sabbath because they're working in the temple on the Sabbath. They're the ones who are actually working. Ironically, the rest of the people would come in and rest, yet here are these people having to do the work of the ministry, you could say. The temple is the place where God's presence resides, and it's the footstool of his throne. And here are these priests mediating God's presence, which is at the heart of the Sabbath rest. So these priests have a very good reason to work on the Sabbath. So we we have to see that there are kind of qualifications in what this rule or this Old Testament rule is saying that you are to partake of rest, but there are people who have to break this rest in order to serve you. And if they look at that, they're like, oh, okay. Now what Jesus is doing here is he's not just, he's not just, he is, he's not just saying that he is a great priest, where these priests are mediating God's presence. What Jesus is not just saying or what you might be thinking is, okay, I see, I see what Jesus is up to. He's saying he's greater than a priest, or he's doing the work of a priest, so he's fine. But he actually says something much, much deeper than that. He says in verse 6 that something greater than the temple is in their midst. He's not just saying that I'm acting as a priest, though he is. He's saying I am the temple of God to my people, where they take refuge and rest in me. This is a critical statement, an indicting statement. The temple was a place where God's people can enter into God's rest in some measure. The temple was the place where God is present amongst, or among his people. Through, through a blood sacrifice, they were able to come into God's presence and experience a relationship with God. And Jesus is saying that he is greater than the temple. It's a bold thing to say. Now you see what Matthew here is doing, where he previously said, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden. And then he says, you know this example from the Old Testament? I'm actually greater than that. I'm actually greater than him. I'm actually greater than anything you could see. What Jesus was saying and says to you and to me today is that he is God himself who has come to dwell with his people for our rest. And he is the great high priest who makes access to God possible. And in him, in his person, and through his work on the cross, people can actually enter God's rest permanently. 
They can experience forgiveness of their sins. They can be restored to a relationship with God. They can experience peace with God. And everything about the Sabbath and the temple point people to Jesus. And now he's here looking at them, saying, take and eat, find refuge in me. And this is what Jesus wants us to see. He wants them and us to see what the Pharisees are acting like. These Pharisees didn't see what Jesus was doing, so he gives them a third example of why he was doing what he was doing. This time it's from the prophets. If from the second time it was from the priests, the first time it was from the king, now it's from a prophet. He quotes Hosea 6, 6. Hosea chapter 6, verse 6. This is the second time now in Matthew that Hosea 6, 6 has been quoted. Verse 7. And if you have known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. What Jesus says here, from the Old Testament, and quoting the Old Testament, what he's demonstrating to them is that he and his disciples are guiltless because he is showing mercy on them. Because God's love and mercy actually overcome man's burdening yoke. The full context of Hosea 6 sheds light on why Jesus uses this passage. In Hosea's day, the priests are faithful in following the ceremonial law of sacrifices, but all the while, in Hosea chapter 6, it says in verse 9, as robbers lie in wait for a man, so the priests band together, they murder on their way to Shechem, and they commit villainy. And in the same way, Pharisees were adamant about keeping the Sabbath, especially their rules about their Sabbath. They were, if you can think of it, taking something that was intended for rest and making it the hardest thing to keep, right? Some of you who have kids go on a vacation. Is it a vacation for the adults? No, it's work for the adults, right? What these Pharisees have done is they've taken something that God meant for good and they have placed over and over on top of it more work for people to do. You can see how this is a heavy yoke that people have around their necks. Jesus, in effect, claims to be at least equal to David here and greater than the temple. And if that is his status, then he clearly is demonstrating to them that he is Lord of the Sabbath too. The Pharisees were adamant about keeping the Sabbath. But all the while, they were banding together in order to murder the son. That's what our text brings out. And Jesus knew it. The Lord of the Sabbath, they were wanting to kill him, just like as it was told in Hosea chapter 6, verse 9. The Pharisees wanted to control the day of rest, even in putting to death the Christ man who brings rest. Now, the big picture here of these first eight verses in this chapter, the big picture here is that Jesus, if you're just going to make a documentary about this passage, it is clear that Jesus is in charge here. These Pharisees thought they had authority. These disciples just seemed to be along for the ride. But who is actually in charge of now this courtroom of who's wrong and who's right? (laughs) It is one who has a finger against him, and he is showing that he is in charge. In one of the largest displays of the Pharisees' control over the people of God, Jesus says, no, I'm in charge, and my people are hungry. And I want them to eat. Friends, within this, we see that Jesus actually cares about his people. Though it doesn't explicitly show him defending them, he is defending them by providing for them what they could not get on their own. After telling them that you have all you need in me, he is caring for their body as he cares for their soul. Within that picture, do you see 
how the yoke of Jesus is less burdensome than the yoke of the world. Jesus really does care. Even in this case where it seems like he's being attacked, he cares about them. Now, secondly, we see in the next major section of this passage in verses 9 through 14, we see where this text announces that Jesus really is our Sabbath. The first indication shows us that Jesus really does care. In this second passage, another passage about the Sabbath, it announces that Jesus really is our Sabbath. Look at Matthew chapter 12, verses 9 through 14. And departing from there, he went into the synagogue. And behold, a man was there. For, let's just take a step back. In between 8 and 9, I, I want to know what happened, right? I want to know, like, did they slowly, awkwardly back away? Or, you know, how did, how did they go from going to uh, the synagogue? Now they're on their way. Anyway, verse 10. And behold, a man was there whose hand was withered. And they questioned Jesus, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? They think they got it, right? So that they might accuse him. And he said to them, What man is there among you who has sheep? And if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out. How much more valuable is this man than a sheep? And then, so then it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out, and he was restored to normal like the others. But going out, the, Pharisee, the Pharisees took counsel together against him as to how they might destroy him. Now look at this, look at verse 14, the, the tale of this text. Look at verse, verse 14, the second Sabbath controversy where it says the Pharisees went out and conspired against him and how to destroy him. How ironic is this? They just saw a man perform a miracle and they want to kill him. Why? Because he broke their rules, their way of life, their control over other people. They didn't want Jesus eating or healing on the Sabbath but they are ironically perfectly fine with killing someone even on the Sabbath. They're conspiring against him. Now, which is worse? Is it worse to eat food when you're poor on your way to the synagogue or conspire to kill someone? Is it worse to heal a man who has a withered hand or conspire to kill someone? You just see the thick irony and tension within this text right at the very beginning where the healing of a man with a shriveled hand could have waited for another day. He clearly had it for a long time. And possibly, let's give them the benefit of the doubt, though it will only last for maybe five seconds. Maybe the Pharisees were saying, you could do this tomorrow. Let's just wait and come back tomorrow. Jesus, however, exposed their double standard. And what's fascinating to me, and I've been really reflecting on this this week in my own life, is how they and we are nearly obsessed with absolutes. We're obsessed with absolutes. With some caveats tied to it, right? Little escape routes on everything that we say with a loud sense of gusto. We say things very firm, but we are good about giving excuses or caveats. Think for yourselves. I don't need to give you an example of the moral or spiritual absolutes you may have, but you are quick. I am quick to make an exception out of convenience or fear. Well, let me give you one. Or you might say, in our family, we have an important, and we believe it is important to worship God with God's people. It is important to go to the house of worship. It is important for us to go to church. Unless we've got a busy weekend. We've got family in town got a ball game. 
or we, we've got a lot of work that built up over the week, or we've got a deadline coming up, or I've got a big exam tomorrow. Big absolute. A lot of caveats, don't we have? Or I'll give you another one. Uh, one of my good friends in the ministry was a youth pastor in a fluent city for 12 years. Actually, he was Brooks' youth pastor for four years. And he said one of the most frustrating conversations that he has with parents in this affluent city is wanting nothing more. These parents wanting nothing more than for God to save their child and for their child to live for God. Oh God, save and sanctify my child was their constant cry at the parent meeting. But whenever a couple of kids along the way wanted to vocationally go into the ministry or on a mission field, there's no money in that. You can surely get a better internship that'll look better on a resume later on. Don't you want to be a doctor like mom and dad? God, do whatever you want with my kid as long as it fits into my calendar. We're good. We're good about that, aren't we? I want to pray every day. And then the alarm comes on and all I can think about is myself. I want to go to lunch and only talk about the gospel. And then something in my soul brings up something that will burn at the end of days, doesn't it? We are people who love caveats. On the Sabbath, there were good-hearted rules that were made to help people honor God. And one of those rules was to not work, was to not ranch, was to not study, but was to rest. Unless, here's one of these rules, unless your livestock was in a ditch or a hole. Make sense? Why was it okay to rest from your work unless one of your cows goes into a ditch? Because livestock equals money. And they were prepared to make an exception to alleviate an animal and to alleviate economic loss. But when it came time for Jesus to heal a man's hand, oh, there's no money in that. Jesus, in a sweeping statement, says it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath, full stop. And this was a striking contrast with the Pharisees' tendencies to multiply regulations. How about this rule? You can almost hear Jesus saying, do good for others. No wonder they had to oppose a man who so openly ignored both their authority and the principles they stood for. Check out what Jesus does here in this passage. He points at the Pharisees and says, look how heavy their yoke is. And then draws the disciples' attention to himself and says, look at me, my burden is light. Jesus wants those who are weary and heavy laden to come to him for rest, to come to him to be restored to a right relationship with God, to have their sins forgiven, to have life eternal. But the Pharisees are standing in the way. They won't come into the kingdom of heaven and they're keeping others from coming in because of the rules that they're placing on people. And Jesus wouldn't have it. So he asserts his authority over the Sabbath. Man who has already said that he is greater than David, he is greater than the temple, he is the Lord of the Sabbath himself, he says that the Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. He has actually always been the one who made the rules. And he will perfectly be the one who keeps it. The final thing that this text says, not only that is Jesus our rest, not only does Jesus care, but amazingly, the third thing that this text announces in the last six verses is that Jesus really is lowly. 
Jesus really is gentle and lowly. In asserting his authority, Matthew wants to qualify Jesus' authority. This comes out in verses 15 through 21, where Matthew quotes from Isaiah chapter 42, where Jesus' authority is qualified as the servant, or as a servant Lord. The text says that Jesus is aware that the Pharisees want to kill him, but he doesn't fight back. Instead, he actually withdraws. You, you could almost say he goes into hiding. And isn't that ironic? I, I keep thinking, if this were a movie, the music would be pumping and adrenaline would be popping because we're about to battle royale. But he kind of retreats from the limelight. Why? In order to continue his ministry of healing and teaching. And people follow him through this. And he commands them not to make it known that he's the Messiah because that time will come. He, he will announce it and there will be a time where it is announced. Matthew tells us that Jesus' withdrawal is to fulfill Isaiah 42, predicted about the servant of the Lord, where the servant of the Lord in Isaiah, the servant, of, the servant of the Lord in Isaiah is a portrayal of the Messiah that has been longed for and people have been waiting for. He's God's beloved son. He's anointed by the Spirit, and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. Matthew tells us that Jesus' withdrawal is to fulfill what Isaiah 42 had predicted, and the reference to the Gentiles is a remarkable one. In a controversy over Israel's Sabbath laws, we hear that the Messiah will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. It was the Jewish people who were to keep the Sabbath rules, and then what is being portrayed here is that a servant will come and proclaim justice to those who had been thought of to be outside of his love. I believe that the justice that's being spoken here is probably about the peace and rest that will come when the Messiah comes. But it's not just for Israel. It's also for the Gentiles. And the bigger point here is found in verses 19 through 20 of this chapter where this Messiah won't quarrel or cry aloud. In other words, his main mission at first is coming not to stick it to his enemies, but instead his main mission at his first coming is to bring rest to those who are weary and heavy laden. It says, a bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench, until he brings justice to victory. Jesus didn't come to fight his opponents like they wanted him to. He didn't come to run Rome out of Dodge. He came to seek and to save the lost from the heavy yoke of the world and their own heart. He's calling them to examine all of the outside religious circumstances. He's calling them to examine the things that they have placed in their own heart, the sin and despair that they have caused for themselves, and he is then calling their attention to him, the one who gives rest to the weary. He came to save people from their sins, to give rest to the weary, to restore these broken people by the sin to a right relationship with God, to bring the alienated back into God's presence. And he didn't come to be served, but he did come to serve. And give, life as, and give his life as a ransom. This is profound, friends, of all that Jesus does in these three little snippets. He says for people to come to him, and then he shows that he cares. He says for people to come to him, and then he says that he is the Lord. He, he tells people to come to him, and then it's announced about him that he will serve them to the point of his own death. And it's in that reality that you can take refuge in him. 
This passage places truths together that are almost completely irreconcilable to the world. How can a gentle man own everything? How can someone who breaks the world's rules actually give new life to those who are outside of his love? Jesus is the absolute ruler. He is our gentle Lord, our lowly Lord. He's sovereign over all. He's greater than David. He's greater than the temple. He is, in fact, the Son of Man, the Lord of the Sabbath, where all authority in heaven and earth have been given to him, and yet he's gentle and lowly. That's him. He doesn't break the bruised reed. He doesn't come to to put out the wick, but he comes to capture and graft it into himself. In conclusion, one of the things that this text does is it calls us to think about what comes to our mind when we think of God. There are controversies all around us about who the person of Christ is. It was a controversy of who the Pharisees thought the Messiah would be. It was probably even controversial on who these disciples were seeing Jesus to regularly be in their own lives. But for us, when we think about who God is, what comes to mind? Well, amazingly, it's here in the text where Jesus actually reveals God to us. When thinking about who God is, we ought to think about Christ where he shows us the true picture of God because he's the son of God. He is fully God. God's authority is greater than any other authority. God will bring judgment and justice on this earth for all who don't come to a son. But he's also full of mercy and love for all who do come to a son. He came to give us rest. He came to do good to us. He came to do good for us. So, friends, let us be encouraged from God's word today that if you have not already come to Jesus for rest, this Jesus who welcomed these people and then cared for them until the ends of their lives is the same Jesus that calls out to you and says, whatever yoke you've got, come to me and take my yoke. Let's pray. Our gracious and heavenly Father, we thank you that your word is clear about who you are. We thank you that you are one that we can place our hope in, that we can that you are one who we can find rest in. In all of the world, Lord, you know the circumstances that you have sovereignly put us within and you know how burdensome they are. But God, we pray that you would continue to refresh us with the gospel that your son has bought for us. God, we thank you that your word tells us about how great you are and we ask that you would continue to place us in a sense of worship, giving glory and honor to your son. We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.